every medical practice should have a sexuality educator associated with it, and every <laughs> social work organization should have a sexuality educator associated with it. Um, but now I'm really dreaming. Yeah, if we ran the world. <laughs> If you've listened to It's Not Human Sexuality before, you already know how passionate we are about reproductive health education, and you may also already know that Betsy and I both feel our education system needs an overhaul when it comes to how we discuss this important topic. Today we'll be talking to another educator who is passionate about changing the way we talk to young people about sex, gender, and relationships. We will hear his perspective on the current way we teach about reproduction and sexuality. Power and privilege can show up in a classroom in heterosexism, in white supremacy, in ableism, and really confronting those things. His suggestions on how it can be improved. I'm fond of the day that I bring Play-Doh in and we get to sculpt genitals out of Play-Doh and everybody gets their own can of Play-Doh to keep. And also the impact of COVID on his students and how he teaches in these times. The best thing they can do while they're young is to learn how to walk through awkward and come out the other end and realize that they've survived. Welcome to the latest episode of It's Not Human Sexuality. I'm Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B. And I'm Mandy Johnson. Here today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Al Vernarchio. I'm really excited to be here. Al is an educator at Friends Central School in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. He is the Sexuality Education Coordinator and the Chair of the Upper School English Department. As the Sexuality Education Coordinator, Al teaches classes, organizes sexuality-themed programs and assemblies, provides parent education on human sexuality topics, and is one of the faculty advisors for the Gender and Sexual Orientation Alliance. Al has been teaching for over 25 years. He's published articles, lectured at conferences, appeared on national programs, has four TED Talks, and is the author of For Goodness Sex, changing the way we talk to young people about sexuality, values, and health. So glad to have you here today, Al. Thanks so much. I'll be honest and tell you I'm a little bit of a fangirl, and I've been a fan <laughs> of your work since the first time I read your book, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to have you here. Can you tell us a little about you and your history and how you got into um, teaching sexuality, and, um, or as we like to call it here, reproductive health? Sure. Be happy to. Um, yeah, I started my teaching career actually um, at a private Catholic school for boys. And I was hired to be both an English teacher and a religion teacher. My undergraduate degree is in theology. Um, and as part of the religion course that I had to teach, there was a human sexuality component that was kind of tacked on at the end of the year for two weeks. And I started teaching that and thought, this is awesome. And over the seven years that I was at that school, I kept nudging that piece of the course to be longer and longer and longer until it got to be a full semester course in human sexuality. And I also uh, went to grad school and got a master's degree in human sexuality education. Um, so at that point, I had uh, specific training in how to teach human sexuality. Um, and then left that school, uh, did a couple other jobs for a while, and then landed at Friend Central, where I've been for the last 23 years. And I've been teaching human sexuality and English there um, since that time. Very cool. That's a that's a definitely a different route to to get into this field than um, than typical. I, I but... know a lot of people who got to sex through religion. It's, it's... <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> Catholics. Yes, especially Catholics. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I really like that you said you, you kind of kept nudging that that unit to be longer and longer. I, I do similar things to the unit that's supposed to be a week in my class is now like for, you know, um, <laughs> it's important stuff. So I want to make sure that they get the information they need. Um, all right. So one of the things that I've always really enjoyed about um, what you do and what you teach is your pizza metaphor. I show that in the, your TED Talk video in my class every semester. Um, it's one of the ways that I introduce the topic, to be honest. It's part of my first couple of days. Um, 
Would you be willing to give us a little short explanation of that? Sure. Thanks so much for being a fan of that. I'm yeah. I'm kind of known as the pizza guy in the <laughs> in the sexuality education world. Um, so it comes from a TED talk that I gave in 2012, and basically, a lot of my work in human sexuality is about reframing how to look at something in a different way to create a whole different set of understanding. And one of the things I found was that in the United States, the baseball model or the baseball metaphor gets used when we talk about sexual activity. And I've come to see that that metal and that model and metaphor as pretty problematic. It, it's, um, it's very sexist, it's very heterosexist, it's loaded with power and privilege and patriarchy. And I wanted to give kids an alternative, a different way. You can't just say, don't think about sex like baseball. That really doesn't work. So I came up with this idea of thinking about uh, sexual activity like pizza. It has a couple of really different um, uh, aspects to it than the baseball model. So whereas baseball is competitive, you're playing against each other, pizza is cooperative you're trying to create an experience that everybody involved in will enjoy and feel good about. Um, where baseball is very rule-bound and has to be done in a very specific way, pizza has a lot of flexibility and variety built in. And you really can create a pizza to suit your particular tastes. And what's really important is when you're having pizza with somebody else, you have to learn how to negotiate so that everybody gets to have what they want in some ways. Um, and lastly, baseball is about sort of winning and losing. There's always somebody who wins and always somebody who loses. And pizza is more about satisfaction. And so when you're actually finished can vary on how hungry you are or how much you want in a certain moment. Um, and it also can vary over time. So I wanted to create a way for young people to look at sexual activity that um, had many more options, that was more equitable and inclusive for LGBTQ plus people, for people who were differently abled, for people who were older, you know, that just could be could be enjoyed by anybody. And I really wanted to create something that got rid of the competitive nature, uh, because I think that's really problematic. And I think young people, when they don't know any better, they don't see those things when they hear that baseball model and they start to internalize it. They just think it's a quick and easy way to talk about something that can be hard to talk about otherwise. So giving them the pizza model has allowed them to confront the baseball model. And not everybody adopts the pizza model in my classes. You know, I always have kids who push back against it, and that's pretty normal. But, um, but at least it gives an option. And that's really important to me, is so that, so that those kids who feel left out by the baseball model see that there is something that, uh, that they can use to create and conceptualize an experience that's going to be good and satisfying and positive and healthy for them. Yes. I love that. And every time I show it in my classes, my students really enjoy it. And they always say, I never really thought about how that baseball model meant any of that stuff. You know, I just, I just thought about third base or whatever. And, and or home run or home yeah. run. Yeah. More specifically, but having them watch your video really just expands their, their ideas of, of what, you know, what they can think about and what sex can be. And, and it also helps people confront some of that heterosexism and the, um, the patriarchy, like you were saying, that they didn't realize was inherent there. And so I'm so glad um, it works for your kids. That's great. It does. And I just love it. So I, I have a ton of kids come back to me and be like, pizza, you know, <laughs> um, all the time in the hallways and things. So uh, I know it sticks with them as well. Another thing is that and I, I was kind of saying this before we started recording, but uh, the first time I read your book, and then again when I read it a second time, I was really struck by by how similar uh, our teaching styles are, I guess, is how I would say that. There were a lot of things that you do in your classroom that that I also do, and, and I thought, man, has he been a fly in the wall in my classroom? How does he know I do that, you know? Um, but one of the things that really struck me is that you talked about in your book, you said that, um, you said that if you can't look your sweetie in the eye and talk about it, you shouldn't be doing it. And I have a, a set of rules that I teach my kids about 
feeling if you know you're ready for sex. And my very first rule is that exact same thing, that if you can't talk about it and look them in the eye while you're doing it, you're not ready for what it means to have sex. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I always thought I made it up. And um, (laughs) then I saw it in your book and I was like, well, this is a thing. (laughs) I clearly didn't just make this up. Like this is, this is something other people also teach. Yeah. I think it's such a powerful message for young people. And it also, it normalizes talking about sex, which I think we really need to do. Um, and, And then you get to confront with young kids that, you know, yeah, that might be an awkward conversation, but guess what? you can have that conversation. Awkward is, I don't know about your, your teenagers, but my teenagers in my classes are, are terrified of awkward. It's the, but they live it's the in thing awkward. they just don't want to be. Yeah. And I, you know, have to lay this big truth on them that, that life is awkward and that sex is really awkward. And, right. Um, and that the best thing they can do while they're young is to learn how to walk through awkward and come out the other end. And yes. realize that they've survived. Um, yes. That's a really powerful message. Sure. And it sounds like it's a, a, a real big, uh, easy step towards understanding consent. And mm-hmm. consent Absolutely. needs to be a verbal you know, message. Because that's what it should lead to, right? Sure. I mean, affirmative, positive, mm-hmm. joyful, enthusiastic consent. And I want pizza! Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We, we talk in my class um, when we're trying to define sexual activity. Um, one of the things I always say is, is your definition based simply on a behavior, like this goes in there, or is your definition based on the qualities you're trying to achieve? So for me, a definition of sexual activity always starts with the word consensual. And then we go from there, consensual, mutually pleasurable activity that, you know, and we go on from there. Um, And I think that's another way of reframing. That's a way of taking, because our culture looks at sexual activity as a very behavioral-based thing. And when we can say, actually, what we're doing is less important than the way we're doing it. And if we're doing it with consent, and if we're doing it with keeping other people's full humanity in in our minds and if we're really looking for something that is mutually pleasurable and mutually satisfying uh, we're going to have a much better outcome than if we've read a bunch of books on sexual technique and think you know we could, if you just move these six different ways everything's going to go right i and i love that because you know part of that conversation does have to be hey these are the things i like and these are the things i don't like um, and it's really important to, to be able to have that conversation. And that's something that I definitely believe that most kids aren't hearing when they are learning about sex, um, if they even get to learn about sex. Uh, but I don't feel like that's something that gets shared with, with as many kids as it needs to be shared. Um, yeah, I agree. Having that, that talk first. And so you also brought up, you talk to your kids about what sexual activity is. And that's another activity that I was going to say, that's something I do in my class as well. And we talk about what's sex and what's not sex. And what do you consider sex? And what do you consider a virgin? And um, I actually just did that with my students about two days ago. And, you know, just the, the amazement in their eyes when they think about, I never thought about if oral sex was sex before. That just never ever even occurred to me to think about, you know, and, and I never thought that somebody else would have a different definition of virgin than me. And they're always really right. surprised that other people in class think differently than them about these ideas. Sure. Have you found the similar? Absolutely. Yeah. Teenagers are, you know, God love them. They're incredibly egocentric and they really do think that the world <laughs> thinks the same way they do. Um, yes. And it's important for them to be able to have conversations where they can discover a variety of ideas and thoughts. Yes, and I have the same experience with with my kids. One of the things I like to ask them is, you know, in that activity, what is sexual activity? So in all these things that we're saying is not sex, what is it? How do you characterize it? What what, you know, what would you say about it? Um, and then we start to notice that the language that we use to describe what is and isn't sex is really powerful. And we can also learn how um, that language can be more inclusive or more exclusive. 
um, how it can lead to more justice or more oppression. Uh, because for me, sexuality education is social justice education. You know, sex is a social justice issue. And it's very important for, for me when I'm teaching to always have that lens of how are we using sexuality to make the world more just, more free, more equal, more, um, more together. Um, that's part of the values of the school that I'm that I'm in because we're a Quaker school, and we embody values of community and equity and simplicity and peace. Um, but I also think no matter what your philosophical or theological orientation, that's an important lens to use when thinking about sexuality. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So. One of the things that that leads me right into the next question that I was going to ask is what are some of the strategies that you use um, with language or the way you teach in order to ensure your class is inclusive for all the different identities and um, different abilities and all the different people you're going to see? Sure. So there's a couple of things that I think help to, to create that atmosphere. One is that I have a set of ground rules or guiding principles that I go over at the beginning of every class, whether it's our first class or our 15th class together, and we just run through them at the beginning. And a couple of them, um, I think, are are important. You know, it's it, obviously there's a lot of the standard ones, use I statements and speak for yourself. Um, when you leave the class, uh, the stories stay, but the lessons leave. So you can take information that you've learned out into the world, but not people's personal comments. Um, but one of my uh, ground rules is always that we're trying to be attuned to how power and privilege can show up in a classroom, in heterosexism, in white supremacy, in ableism, um, and really confronting those things. So sort of announcing that we are looking out for those things creates an awareness. And then I'm really, I try really hard in my class to use as inclusive language as I can. Um, so I use the word sweetheart. I never use the word boyfriend or girlfriend. I don't gender people's partners um, unless they tell me the the gender identity or the or the sex or you know whatever of their of their partner. I just use the word sweetheart. Um, I tend to use you know they them pronouns for everybody until I know otherwise that they would they would use a different pronoun. Um, so it's little behaviors like that that create an atmosphere in the classroom that um, that show that we're normalizing these kinds of of um, approaches to when we're, when we're talking. And then we do a lot with language in terms of, you know, I think it's really important that there's not one correct language to speak when we're talking about human sexuality. The goal is to be multilingual, to be able to speak romance language, to be able to speak a medical and scientific language, and to be able to speak very casually with your friends. Um, and so that's another fun activity that we do when we're looking at all the different names for genitals and, and sex acts and things like that. And we're beginning to learn that there are so many ways to express something. And the way we choose to express it, the language we choose to use, conveys very powerful messages and very deliberate messages. And so when we are more deliberate with our language, um, we're clearer in our communication. And, and that's always to the good. That's another activity of yours in the book that I love is the putting the posters on the wall and having them name all the different um, words. And I, I actually went through a master's program in human sexuality education as well. I didn't make it through because it was in Pennsylvania and I'm in Colorado, but um, but I did. That was one of the activities that we did in one of our classes. And I just loved it and have done it in my classroom ever since because I it's such a powerful, powerful thing to show show kids the power of words. And, you know, just the different meanings they convey depending on, on how you say it. And so um, I think that's a great thing that you do. How much of your um, setup like that, making your class feel safe and all of that, has to do with the relationships you build? And on top of that, how has COVID changed that? Have you guys gone remote? Sure. Yeah. We, well, we've been, we've been everything from fully virtual to hybrid. Um, we've not yet been fully back live. 
um, and I don't know that we will be this year. So for most of the year, we've been either fully virtual or hybrid with some kids on some kids on campus and some kids at home. And as you probably know, um, teaching in that hybrid model is really tricky because um, having some kids zooming in, having other kids live in front of you, you're really trying to do two things at the same time. And it's possible, but it's it's kind of exhausting. Um, what I have found is that the the hybrid nature and and even just when we were fully online um, can really inhibit conversation. Um, kids seem to be much more um, aware. It's it's an it's an odd paradox because they're all alone in their own rooms, but they're hyper aware of everybody else on the Zoom. And um, I actually just had a conversation with my ninth graders about how we might create more conversation and discussion um, in our classes because uh, it's been stifled a bit, I've noticed this year. When we're all in the room together, there's a spontaneity, there's a playfulness, there's, um, there's an ease that is much harder to create in the online environment. And I think there are teachers who do it better than I do. I think I'm an, I'm an old dog and this is kind of new tricks for me. Um, and I recognize my own limitations, but, um, but I do think, and this is just my bias. I think that, uh, creating relationships is what good education is about. And especially when you're doing, you know, sexuality or reproductive education, um, Establishing a relationship where there's a communal sense of purpose and where there's where you can develop some level of trust over time and where people are are not afraid to take risks and be a little brave. I think that's one of the things that I find most with COVID is um, and and how how can how can this not be true? I think there's a fundamental sense of fear that permeates so much of all of our lives and especially the lives of our kids. And I think that that makes it hard to be brave sometimes when you're sort of in protection mode and in kind of survival mode. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, what happens the day this all ends when we're finally able to really come back together as a full community that's an amazing opportunity for us to kind of reset, relearn, relaunch, and think about how do we want to interact with each other? How do we want to create community? And I think for sexuality educators, it's a really important moment that we think about. And we try to be very deliberate about that moment when we're all meeting again in the classroom face-to-face. so I've been giving that a lot of thought, and I'm I'm still working on on different ideas for it. But but I really do see it as a tremendous opportunity that we're going to have, especially for kids like my ninth graders who, you know, have never known high school any other way than this virtual or hybrid model. Um, and so we're going to get a chance to really introduce them to the high school experience. Um, in a way that's very familiar to to those of us that have been doing it for a long time, but that's going to be brand new to them. And how exciting and what a great opportunity. So I'm sure you've thought of that too in, with your own classes. Um, yes, it's, it's going to be, I'm, I'm very excited. So I'd kind of like to circle back to the uh, concept that you had of the kids not being as um, participa- participatory. Sure. Um, do you think part of it is is because they're at home and they have a hard time wanting to talk about reproductive health and sexuality at home versus maybe it's awkward for them because they don't want that relationship in their brain and their house and the concept of what they're talking about? It's too much of a privacy boundary crosser? I certainly think that's, that's a, an important piece of it. And I think that's something that uh, that a teacher needs to figure out a way to dialogue about with kids um, because maybe they're aware of that maybe they're not aware of that um, you know for many of them they they are in their own home but they're they're alone in their rooms and it's not like there's a lot of people 
coming in and going out. So there's a there's a very weird sense of it's kind of private, but it's not really private, and it's it's private in a different way than when we're all in a room classroom together having a common experience. So I absolutely think there's something about the nature of being being home or even, you know, even being in a pod of students um, somewhere maybe where you're not home in a smaller pod that changes the dynamic. Um, so yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's, um, and those are also tricky conversations to have, I'm finding, because, you know, sometimes they're reluctant to, to voice that. And I, I've definitely noticed a lot less participation and, and, you know, we don't require students, they don't have to have their cameras on in class. And so right. sometimes I'm not even sure if I'm talking to people or if I'm talking to myself. Um, but one of the things that I found, and I've, I've tried asking my students what, what's going on and what's the difference, but I, one of the things I found is that on a normal semester when I teach this, my anonymous question box will get between 50 and 100 questions in, in one class, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, since we've gone remote or hybrid, every time I've taught this, I get less than 10. Yeah. And it's like the kids don't even wanna ask questions. And, and um, I, you know, I keep telling them, I know you're curious, I know you are, because every student before you has been curious and has had questions. So, you know, what, what is it that's gonna get you to ask them? Nobody has a good answer. Yeah, I'm for having me. a very <laughs> similar experience. That's you know, in in some ways, I'm really thankful to hear this because uh, it's not just me, but um, but it also leads me to think how sad and and what is going on there. I have the yeah. same thing. I have an anonymous a blog that kids can submit anonymous questions to, mm -hmm. and it's it's really gone to a trickle. Yeah, that's. Me too. I've got an online one. And then for the kids in yeah. class, I still have my physical box. And just the number of questions has just dwindled so much. It's, And one of the things I found, too, is that this quarter, we started remote and then went to hybrid. Mm. And so now that I'm in my reproduction unit, the kids don't know me enough for right. for what I do to come across correctly. You know, I'm fun and I'm goofy and I'm silly and they usually get that about me, but they don't seem to now. And so when I'm trying to be my fun, goofy, silly self now, they just think I'm crazy, I think. Yeah, um, it, you know, I, it doesn't I work. I can relate to that. Yeah, I, I like you were saying that, that whole relationships thing and, yeah. and it's so hard to build relationships with kids virtually. Uh, it's just, it's very frustrating. And yet when you think about the kids were teaching so many of their relationships and their important relationships they have either established virtually or maintained virtually so there's got to be something i don't i don't know if it's if it's a generational thing or it's an age thing or what but but these kids really know how to relate and create relationships online and yet it seems like it's not happening uh, in schools the way the way we would like it to. And I, that's another area, I guess, for us to address and think about. Yeah, it's definitely a disconnect for them in terms of what they do in their personal lives with technology versus what they do for school with technology. And it's not the same stuff, apparently. <laughs> but um, it might it might be because what they do virtually with their friends is for fun. And um, they don't see school in that same concept you know suddenly their fun has now become work and i mean maybe that's it and that's not fun for them <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. I've, I've honestly I so. started to think is there a way for me to teach via text <laughs> because they'll <laughs> respond that way you know like they, mm -hmm. they are very engaged with their phones all the time so i think god is there a way that i could just teach through text so that i know they'll they'll engage with me that way. But, um, you know, I haven't figured that out yet because I'm not that good of a texter. So, all right. So a few more questions for sure. sure. Do you have a favorite lesson to teach to your students and why is it your favorite? Oh, that's a great question. I'm, I'm fond of the day that I bring Play-Doh in and we get to sculpt genitals out of Play-Doh and everybody gets their own can of Play-Doh to keep. And it's a lesson about um, embryonic development, and it's a lesson about how our um, our bodies, although they wind up looking really different, are actually really similar. Um, it's a lesson that has multiple layers to it, but the delight and the joy 
when I pull out cans of Play-Doh and say everybody gets to take one um, is a lot of fun. Uh, and it's it's a place where there is explicit permission to be silly and to um, to not have to worry about how you know how how one looks while they're molding play-doh penises and vulvas um and it's so that's always fun i also i love the day that we explore different kinds of condoms um and i have a whole you know the whole variety out and kids can go around and look and unroll and you know uh see what a flavored one smells like and maybe tastes like if they want to if they want to try to taste it um that's always fun think things that are highly uh, highly engaging highly interactive places where we can be playful where we can learn without um without realizing that we're learning yes those are the moments that i just i can see you're i can see you smiling so much it's got to be <laughs> the same for so many teachers yes those are the real joyful moments Absolutely. I was, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about my, my, when I introduce contraception, I just put all of it out on the table and I make mm-hmm. them go around silently and guess what they are and what they're used for. And it's that same idea. Like you can just see their eye just, wow, I had no idea all of this was in existence. You yeah. know? And it's the hands-on stuff is, is so much fun with the students. So, and this, the stuff where there's really aha moments, the stuff that where you you can see a light bulb happen and um and it's it's not so much that i've learned new information sometimes it's that but it's that i've just thought of it in a way that i'd never thought of it before um i like to do a uh, i do this imaginary safer sex auction where where i put up for auction things like you know a a perfect um sexy wonderful partner who will always remain faithful and disease-free or in a magic ring that will show you the sexual history of anybody um, that that you want or you know a condom that will last forever and never never run out and never break and guaranteed to work and um, I set it up like a silent auction and kids go around and bid on items and then we get to talk about what got the most bids and why and what you know what that they never want to bid on the pill that um, you can drink or drug as much as you want, but it won't have any effect on you. That one, interestingly, gets very, very low bids. Um, And those are really amazing conversations to have uh, about why. And um, yeah, so it's those those aha moments. It's those hands-on moments. It's those moments where where the class flies by and you can't believe that 50 minutes have, have come and gone. Um, and it's when kids walk out of the room and just say, that was so much fun. And, you know, I can't wait to tell people in the cafeteria what we did today. Things like that are, are just, those are really good days. Absolutely. Do you have any lessons or um, topics that are your lesser favorite to, to talk sure. about? Um, you know, body image is always a hard topic for me to teach and talk about, uh, partly uh, my own stuff that, you know, I struggled with my own body image for a long time, but also because I can see how painful it is for so many students and can see how the, you know, the media has done such a disservice to our kids and, um, trying to indoctrinate them into ideas that their bodies have to look a certain way to be desirable and worthy and lovable. Um, so that, that's always a hard, a hard unit. Um, you know, I think talking about sexual violence is always hard. Um, and I think it's, it's hard because it is one of the places where I think you can inadvertently do more harm than good. I mean, if you're not really well-trained, and not really on your game. Um, uh, you know, I think it's so important that we talk about that, but, um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a sad and painful day. And I think sometimes days like days when I bring in um, some speakers who, who, you know, ultimately have, have stories that are joyful in the endings, but struggle through when I bring in some students who are, you know, transgender who have been in our school and gone through our school and weren't treated the way 
they really should have been. Um, and they talk about some of those experiences and, uh, and I get to, you know, relive those moments when they were, when they were there and vulnerable and, and not being well served. Um, even though things turn out great in the end, those are days where I, I leave with a, a bit of a heavier heart. So, but I think always, I think any teacher has those moments. And I think, you know, partly it's stuff that hits on our own stuff. And, um, and partly it's just that there are some realities in the world that are hard. And although we have to learn them, it's, they're hard lessons to learn. Yes. Are, are you allowed to talk about abortion? I am. Um, interestingly, it is a topic that does not come up usually unless I bring it up, which I find I always find interesting. Um, I teach in a very progressive school. So there is, I would say that the vast majority of my students and their families um, are, are uh, certainly pro-choice and certainly think a lot about reproductive justice. Um, and I think that in a school like mine, it can be harder for kids and families that maybe um, are struggling a little more to figure out what they believe or excuse me, who maybe are feeling not feeling as relaxed about, um, about the fact that, that women have choices around what happens to their bodies. Um, so I can, it's, uh, I, I can, but it, it is not a topic that comes up um, regularly, I would say, you know, when I'm doing reproduction and birth and contraception, um, I always talk about abortion uh, in that, in that context. Um, yeah, but it's not something that, that is often generated by the kids. I would, I would agree. That's not a question that comes up all that often in my class, but, um, occasionally, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not something that as many kids want to jump into, I guess. Although, uh, I live and work in a little bit more of a conservative area than, than that. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, it came up a lot for me because I taught at the university, but mm -hmm. um, sure. also I just spoke to it more uh, scientifically about what it is, how it's done, when it's done. Um, and then we look at the so sociological part of it as the percent that occurs and I think you know the population that y'all are teaching to is definitely the smallest percentage that um, clocks in on the number of terminations that are done yearly and I think for those for those young people that maybe have um, have terminated pregnancies I think there's a lot of stigma and shame around that still even though in a progressive community people would say it's absolutely you're right. I still think there's um, there's a reluctance to talk about it. For sure. I would I would agree with that. It's it's not something that a lot of I think a lot of students might even be curious and have questions but they don't mm -hmm. want to be the one that brings it up. Um, yeah. cuz when I do get questions it's almost always in my anonymous question box. You know, it's it's very rarely a kid raising their hand. Um, because they, they don't want anybody to think that it's something they're thinking about or, you know, something right. that is near and dear to them in any way. So, Right. Um, that's, uh, that's another ground rule that I use, which is we, we will work really hard not to make assumptions about the questions that somebody asks. Uh, that we're not we're, – we're going to try real hard not to um, – yeah, not not to make assumptions about about somebody based upon the questions they ask, and I think that's important to reiterate over and over. Yes, I and that's something too. I also reiterate with my students is you know, you might have judgy thoughts in your head, but keep them off your face, keep them from coming out your mouth. Um, you know, everybody's got a right to ask the questions that they want answers to, and and like you said, we can't assume their intentions based on the question. Um, that's right. It's not good to assume anything. So that's another one of my favorite things to teach kids <laughs> is, you know, what assume really means. <laughs> um, so you, in your book, you mentioned that you teach a year long course. Is that still the, the case? It's a year it's, long? It's, it's become a semester long course now because okay. all of our classes went from year longs to semesters. Um, sure. So it's a semester long course for older kids, for 11th and 12th graders. Um, and it meets every day for a full class block. So it meets as often as English or math or Spanish or anything like that. 
And then I have a course for ninth graders, and that the ninth grade course is required. Everyone takes it. The uh, 11th and 12th grade is an elective course, which kids can choose to take. And the ninth grade course, I see kids for about, you know, about 30 times a semester, which is a lot um, considering uh, what what many schools are giving uh so it's a it's a course i share a course block with another another class okay okay so it's more like a quarter long in terms of how much you see them yeah it it takes place over a semester but i see them for about a half that time were both of those classes set up already when you started at that school or did you start both of those oh no i started both of them um and i started the i started the more intensive class first uh, well, I actually was hired as a full-time English teacher when I was hired at my school. Um, but in my interview, I made it known that I had a master's degree in human sexuality and that I would be interested in in teaching that if if the school was open to it. And um, they were very, uh, very open. And they said, why don't you sort of take a look around, do a needs assessment, see what you find. So I spent the first two years learning the culture of the school and looking around, seeing what was in health curriculum, things like that. And in my second year, I proposed uh, this elective course. Um, and then uh, it was actually the kids who said to me, you know, this is awesome. We love it. But for some of us, some of this information is coming too late and you've got to talk to the younger kids. And so I started, there was no place in the curriculum to put a new course so I started doing these, I call them sex weeks, where I asked each discipline to give me a day. So one day I would go into all the English classes and all the math classes and all the language classes, and I'd work out kind of a week's worth of intensive work. Um, and then we had a schedule update and a space opened up, and I was able to, to get this. And I've been doing that now for, for many years. Um, and then uh, my job uh, continue to expand where now I also do work in the middle school and the lower school. So we're a nursery through 12th grade school. Uh, my classes are in the high school, but I'm now doing um, lots of lessons in middle school around puberty, around crushes, things like that. And uh, also doing work in the lower school around everything from gender to consent to uh, diverse families. Oh, that's so awesome. This is that sounds exactly like what me and Betsy are wishing we could do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we we were able to pilot a, a semester-long course together. Betsy and I co-taught it at, at my previous school. We did that two semesters, um, but we weren't able to get it approved to stay on the schedule. And now in the new district that I'm at, it's it's not even, yeah, they're not even open to the idea right now. Um, and it's it's really nice to hear that it was so like i don't want to say it was probably so easy for you but that it wasn't as problematic um where you're at than, right. as it is here it, yeah i wouldn't say it was easy and i would say it went at a glacial pace the way the way many schools do but there absolutely was an openness that i was yeah. delighted and it was part of when i did my job search i was really looking for schools that i thought would have an openness to this kind of work because I knew it's what I really wanted to center my life around. Do you have any thoughts or advice for, for others maybe trying to get these kinds of classes set up in high schools? Yeah, it's such a great question. And um, so I have, I have several things that come to mind. Um, one is um, it always had this, I think this is obvious, but it always helps to have parents as your allies and I think the more we can do to work with parent communities, to offer parent workshops, to to get parents to say, "Yeah, this is absolutely something that schools should be should be involved in," not to usurp our roles as parents, but to to accentuate what we're doing and to partner with the school. I think that's really key. Um, I think looking for places where. Um, you know, get it where you can get it. And and one of the things I find in schools is that institutional memory in schools is, um, it only takes four years for something to be the way we do it, you know, in a high school setting. So you do something okay. one year, you really fight hard for it, you fight hard for it the second year, 
The third year, somebody says, are you going to do that thing again? And then the fourth year, it's just part of what you do. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to take the long view. Um, and, I, I, and lastly, I always say to people, you're better off at the school being able to do maybe the little that you're able to do than if you're not there. So I, I don't encourage people. I'm not a huge risk taker, and I don't encourage people to really stick their necks out too far because I don't. I haven't seen that be successful. And um, I think that when word gets out among the students that you are somebody who is open and eager and trustworthy, um, you know, if you build it, they will come. They they will come to you and they will seek you out. And um, and you have to put in that kind of groundwork, and uh, and I think that usually has has results. Um, I, you know, I also think that things like you know making sure you know what your local um, mandates are around sex ed, especially if you're in a district, you know, and and maybe maybe trying to um, maybe bringing the national standards for sexuality education to your board and say, look, this is what people are suggesting ought to be done, and we're really not not doing this. Um, things like that can be useful as well. Well, thank you. That That's all good stuff. Go ahead, Betsy. Sure. How do you feel about uh, the qualifications of uh, somebody teaching this and, and where, because I know, I know Mandy and I struggle with this, you know, we feel like um, there should be more professional development, more support, maybe from people in the field. I know that Mandy and I have both done professional development for teachers in this area, giving them the support that they need. Um, but I don't think everybody is wants to teach this, nor should they, because maybe they just don't have the desire. Yeah. Or they're not comfortable or all agree. the above. And then they're kind of it's kind of forced on them, you know? And so right. I wish there was some sort of certification we could give high school teachers or middle school teachers. Um, you know, like S through ASECT and that sort of thing, but more of a, yep. a junior level to say, to show schools, we're really serious about this. Your teacher is really qualified, has done what they need to do, and this, this your course will rock because of it. I mean, what do you, what do you think your thoughts are on that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that um, too often uh, sexuality and reproductive education is is sort of foisted on people who aren't trained, who don't necessarily want to do it, who feel very ill at ease. So the more professional development we can all be doing um, in schools, I mean, ideally, yes, every school should have at least one specifically trained sexuality educator in the same way that every medical practice should have a sexuality educator associated with it. And every social work organization (laughs) should have a sexuality educator associated with it. Um, But now I'm really dreaming. Uh, But one of the things I've also done is, is, you know, I've I've gone into schools when I get the chance to speak to faculties and I try to say, look, we're all sexuality educators, no matter what we're teaching, we're engaging with people on a human level and we're talking to people about things that are, you know, influenced by gender and sexual orientation and bodies and biology. And, and so I think if we could, if we could help faculties, um, again, reframe, feel a little more empowered, engaged, uh, knowledgeable, give them some skills, give them some guidelines, that can be a, a, a bit of a Band-Aid that can help. But but absolutely, I think I wish that um, our education system uh, took what we do, recognized the professionalism of our field, and recognized how how we have trained specifically to do this work, and that's why we do it well. Um, and that it's not, it, you know, it's not. There's plenty of people out there who really do want to do this work. I've talked to so many graduate students in human sexuality studies, um, you know, who who would love to move into a high school, uh, but there are there are few opportunities. And I always say to them, you know, you need something else to get you in the door, right? You need to be a music teacher or an English teacher or a language teacher. Get your foot in the door, get yourself into a community, and then see what you can create. Um, 
it's very difficult to just walk into a human sexuality job. I, I you know, I've never done it in, in my career. Um, despite all the things I've been able to do, it's always been starting somewhere else and then, and then building the bridges to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've really never even heard of one personally. A couple so. of my colleagues who are pretty lucky to be hired to do that, but, and many of them are part-time. So that's, and that's also not sustainable. Yeah. It's not ideal for a lot of people. I, I got my foot in the door by being a family and consumer science teacher. And so I'm able to teach this topic in my teen choices class. Um, you know, but it's, the ways that I would love to expand on this and, and create another course that, um, you know, that I'm qualified to teach and, and I'm passionate about teaching, but unfortunately that's just not where it's at right now for me. So, um, and, and you answered the question I was going to ask next, which was basically, <laughs> um, but there's still a little more you might be able to say, but is there, uh, anything that you think that our system is already doing well when it comes to sexuality education? I think we've gotten a lot better at, um, at recognizing and respecting and affirming LGBTQ students overall um, in schools. Uh, that's not a universal, but I think uh, when I look at the, the progress uh, the field of education has made around that. That's been, I've been happy to see that progress. I think we're getting there with gender. I think that we need to do a lot more work on uh, looking at sexism in schools and looking at gender equity. Um, and I think, I think certainly, unfortunately, one of the things that, that the HIV AIDS epidemic did was it forced us um, to look at things like safer sex and reproductive health and um, and take those things more seriously. I still think we're too disease-focused and we're still too negative consequences-focused, um, but at least we're able to talk about those things in some way now. So there's there's been some good news. Um, you know, obviously, I, I can envision so much more, um, and I think our kids deserve so much more. But... Um, yeah, I think I think I think in LGBTQ um, respect affirmation, and I think in terms of not being afraid to talk about uh, safer sex, those are two places where I think we've done we've done a good job in in the last number of years. I would agree with that. Do you have any thoughts on how this is a big, broad question? So I'm sorry, but uh, do you have any thoughts on how educators uh, how we could make a lasting systemic change that would benefit all students and not just these small clusters that we are able to do now? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I would, <laughs> me I <don't> too. Really. <laughs> that would get me on Oprah so fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of one of my secret fantasies. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think education is so much about personal connection and each one teach one. And, uh, I, I have, I have really focused my efforts on, on the idea of, I will influence some of the kids that are in front of me and things will change for them. And then they will go out and, and change it for others. And so I, I believe in that sort of grassroots wave motion much more than, uh, trying a, a more top down, solution i'm you know i've i've been at a quaker school for 23 years so community is baked into me and the idea that um that every person is is worthy and is is uniquely lovable and and needs to be honored and respected for who they are um so i i always tend to look bottom up when I get that kind of big question. Um, and, you know, it, it also is part of just my own personality where I am, I'm not somebody who is imbued with, with, you know, high self-confidence and I don't, I don't go tackling giants. I, I, I'd much rather, you know, poke at their feet a little bit until they, <laughs> uh, and wear them down that way. Then, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, yes, the pas- pesky little ant hill rather than the giant. I like it exactly. <laughs> yeah, that seems to that seems to be the. I guess easiest route is the the ripple effect and you know changing yeah. our youth and hope that they'll help change the future and that's actually something I I kind of harp on that with all my students all the time like you guys are the future <laughs> you've got to help me make these changes because you know my generation didn't really do it um, and maybe theirs can right it's always and, hope. And I, you know some part of being a future is saying to those kids. For those of you that are going to be parents, I really want you to start thinking about what are those messages that you do want to convey? What are the ways that you do want to raise kids in a, in a different way? And I think they have an amazing opportunity to be thoughtful and planful and deliberate. Um, and the more we can help them do that, that's to the good. And I, I, think, I think we are seeing some changes in our society and the field are, are pleased with. Um, but you have to be in it for the long game. You really, it's, it's, it's not going to be a short victory. It's, it's going to be a continue and and we're never going to get fully there. You know, I don't like the idea that practice makes perfect. I like the idea that practice makes progress. One step at a time, right? That's all we can do. All right, I think this is my last question that I have here. Um, And that is just that, do you think that your identity as a male changes at all in the way way that you teach or approach this topic? Absolutely, I've done done a lot of work um, uh, over the years thinking about, you know, the fact that I'm a male, the fact that I'm white, the fact that I'm gay, the fact that I grew up in a religiously oriented family. Um, the fact that I grew up in a, in, you know, sort of upper middle class, um, all of those things absolutely impact. And I think my gender, uh, does, does impact. And it's, it's funny. There are ways where, where sometimes I can be, uh, I don't always like recognize that. So, you know, I'm so happy to talk to this is going to sound a little bizarre, but when I'm when I'm talking about puberty to the to the middle school kids, the fourth and fifth graders, I would be delighted to be in the room when you know girls are talking about first periods and and menstrual care and stuff. And I have to remember, oh yeah, they don't want me in the room. That's right. That's there's a way where even though I'm funny and friendly and and cheerful and oh right, they really do want to talk to somebody. Uh, who who maybe has that experience themselves? Um, so I'm always aware of it, and sometimes I get reminded of it in ways that, in ways that um, I say, "Oh yeah, okay, right." There's another there's another moment for me to remember. Um, so it can't. But I also think that, as I said before, when you when you try to teach human sexuality through a social justice lens, y- you have to be aware of how all the different intersectional pieces of your identity impact um, how you're seen in the classroom, how you present in the classroom. And and you have to be able to name that and make that explicit uh, because that really helps kids understand that these things do matter and that they are things we can have conversations about and that I am not always right, you know, just because I'm an old white man. In fact, I'm wrong lots of the times because I'm an old white man and and I need to be open to that and and willing to learn. It's one of the things as I as I'm I'm getting a little older now, I am really looking to the new generation of young sexuality educators who are out there and being so excited by the stuff that I see and the work they're doing and and the way they're thinking, which is, you know, in some ways you know, light years beyond where, where I can be at any moment. And I'm excited that they're going to be able to do things that I can't for a long time. It was people like me, lots of like white gay men who were sort of really limiting and, you know, that's getting in the way versus where that's being helpful. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the places where I always feel like I'm still a student and I'm glad I still feel like I'm a student there and I'm glad I'm still open to, to learning and to um, 
uh, to finding my growing edges and to working on them. Oh, I like that your growing edges. Yeah, one of the one of the first things I always do is to explain to the kids who I am and why I'm passionate about what I'm passionate about, so that they can understand a little bit of my you know, where my bias is when they see them come out, where they're coming from and, and just who I am so that, and I, and I invite them all to call me out on them. You know, like if you hear something biased or some of my biases coming through, remind me because that's one of the ways that we can help each other grow is, is to let each other, you know, hold each other accountable when, when things come out of our mouth that is clearly from our own bias or our own, um, you know, point of view. Um, well, I, that's really all the questions I had. I, do you have any like last thoughts or any, anything else you want to share with us? I, I would just say I'm really thankful to have had the chance to, to talk with you about this. It's been a really delightful conversation. Thank you for doing the work you're doing. I'm, this, this, ha this, this takes a village to do and to do well. And I'm, I'm always happy to meet other folks in the village and to collaborate with them. So um, I hope this is the, you know, the first and not the last time our paths will cross as we as we do this good work together. Absolutely. Hope to see you at the next ASECT conference if we ever get to in those person. Again. Yeah. <laughs> that would be yes. nice. <laughs> yes. That would be beautiful. <laughs> yes. yes. All right. Well, thank you again for being here. We really appreciate it. And um, it's been a lot of fun. Always yes. happy to share. Yes, Appreciate thank you it. so much. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
it's too scary or it's too empowering. I don't know. But I hope that when our students leave the classroom and we tell them those things, that it if that opportunity arises, then it's that, like you were talking about, that aha moment of, oh, I get this now. This is the empowerment piece. Yeah. And that, that ripple thing really is, is important. I just this past week had a student um, message me on Facebook and, or a past student message me on Facebook um, who now has a six-year-old and was telling me how, I just wanted you to know that I've been teaching my, my son all the right names for the body parts. And I did that because I learned it from you. And, you know, I just, it was one of those moments of like, I did change, help change this person and, and hopefully make those, those changes so that, um, you know, her her child will will just accept all that and not not even question body parts and and then when they have kids you know and I don't know it's just it's cool to hear about those stories um, so that you know you're making a ripple somewhere. Right, and I think that um, what Al is doing, you know, for years and decades is um, like you said, it's you're in it for the long haul, and every generation is different, every class is different, every year is different. Um, I did find it interesting, though, uh, that for the 11th and 12th graders, it was elective. Um, pretty much exactly what you and I have set up with um, the high school that we demoed in. Um, and so I, I found that interesting. But what happened to the sophomores? It's kind of like, we're just going to give them a, pa a bye year, you know. And that's kind of what, you know, we've always talked about is that it's education every year to build on every year, just like we do math and history and science and English. Um, but, you know, he's got a, a great opportunity to do that. I mean, three out of the four years are covered and that's pretty exciting. Well, and to be able to go guest speak in his own school at, in younger grades even. Um, oh, sure. That's sure. an opportunity that yeah. most of us don't don't have just based jealous. on the nature of the schools. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> but anyway, so it, was, it was good to hear his, his story and his background, um, quite, quite a path he took and really did it successfully and still doing it successfully. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways and the textbook written by me, Betsy Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used in schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we are always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit us at lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Dr. B. And Mandy Johnson wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. <laughs> that was a shorter <laughs> list than I thought. Okay. Ooh, pass that class, Russ. <laughs> flying colors. I can answer all those questions. Yeah. <laughs>